This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good. You can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time, but you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Brendan Lupatin, uh, a trial lawyer out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He actually has tried a case recently uh, during the COVID pandemic and got a $10.8 million verdict uh, on a medical negligence case. Not only is that hard to do uh, on a medical negligence case, but I've talked to some of my friends in Pennsylvania, and he did it in a county where I heard that plaintiffs just don't win any case, uh, much less a medical negligence case. So I wanted to talk to Brendan about you know his experience and you know how what it was like to try a case uh, in, during a pandemic, and then how he got such a great verdict, uh, not only during these trying times, but in what I understand to be a very challenging venue. So welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Michael. I'm so, so excited to be on the show. It really is a, a thrill and an honor for me. Well, I'm ex- both excited and jealous uh, to talk to someone that's getting to try cases right now. Uh, I'm, I'm dying to get back in there, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm really glad that you were able to do it. Yeah, I, I think we all feel the same way. It, you get antsy and crazy when you don't get to try any cases and then worrying, am I ever going to get to try a case or when will I get to next? When my partner asked me to try this case and told me, no, for real, this case is going to go forward in August. I couldn't believe it, but I was so excited. And and then to realize what a a righteous and good case it was to try in this climate, it was really, uh, truly, yeah, exciting. And and I know you know that as as a fellow trial lawyer, I just, there's a lot of luck, I think, in our practices in our life, and I was really lucky and fortunate to get to try this case now of all times. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about yourself before we get into the case. Let's, let's talk about you a little bit. So I am from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, pretty much uh, born and raised here, uh, a wife and three little boys that are, you know, the, the central focus of my life, and I'm a trial lawyer. I'm a, 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 a real... I pride myself on being a student of the game, a trial nerd. Uh, I read and reread every book from trial guides. I go to every seminar I can get to that you know doesn't you know take away from my family life and my job. And I just you know eat up everything that is on Trial Lawyer Nation, all the amazing lawyers that that you share with us right now. And I I just I love it. And I was thinking a lot when I listened to your interview of Mark Mandel and. And he was talking about how you know, back in the day, there, there really wasn't a lot of knowledge or, or sources of trial information out there. And now, I mean, it's just unbelievable how much information there is out there to improve yourself as a trial lawyer. I mean, it can be a little overwhelming, especially in the pandemic. It seems like it's even exploded further. But yeah. it is just such an awesome time, I think, to be a trial lawyer because of just the unbelievable sharing of information uh, that's out there. And, you know, honestly, for me, your show, Trialer Nation, is is leading uh, the pack in that. It's just, it's an awesome program. And it's just an awesome time for, you know, geeks of the of trial law like me. And me, absolutely. It's uh, it's almost overwhelming how much there is out there and then figuring out how to use it. But it uh, it is awesome that we have so many incredible lawyers sharing great things right now. So have you been able to try many cases before this? Kind of how many cases have you tried? Yeah, so, so my background, I've been practicing for 15 years. And I mean, the reality is I wasn't a particularly good student in law school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I sort of fell into a, a personal injury firm and was still kind of disillusioned with the practice of law until I got 
pretty quickly on thrown into, of all things, a medical malpractice case out in a rural county and um, had literally no idea what I was doing. But when I got in there and I had this opportunity to talk to these people and the whole process sort of struck me about, wow, like this is what it is. This is you know, why I'm doing these complaints or these motions and all this different stuff and there's real people involved. And, and this group of people right here can decide you know, the outcome of the case. It was a terrible case and, and we lost very, very quickly. <laughs> but I was, I mean, hooked at that moment that I have to figure out how to do this. And I mean, my next probably nine to 10 cases I lost in brutal fashion. I you know, felt like I was making progress and I was reading and trying to find more materials. I think the first book I ever read was David Ball on damages and then eventually found my way to you know, reptile and trial guides and started reading more and more and then started to slowly get a little bit more, um, you know, just positive response for the effort that I was putting. I think my first verdict was literally $500 on a rear end car case. It was, (laughs) but, but, uh, you know, I've, I've, now I've probably tried close to 40 cases to jury verdict at this point and had some pretty good success over my last 10 trials. I've I've really been having some good uh, outcomes and I attribute it so much to just, you know, my obsession to learning everything that's out there right now to, to get better. Well, plus, as you get more experience, you get to try better cases. I mean, I think a lot of us, when we're starting, if you're trying enough cases, you're, you're going to take a lot of else. You know, you're going to lose some cases because no one's going to give the biggest, best slam dunk case to the baby lawyer to try. And if you're in there, you got to be willing to get there. I'm trying to remember the name of the book. Uh, there's a really good book. And it, what it looked at is they did, they did a study and they looked at uh, – people that did like really well in school, people that did mediocre, people that did poorly, people that came from, you know, privileged backgrounds, different stuff. And they looked at them so many years afterwards and to see who succeeded and who didn't. Uh, and one of the biggest correlations with success wasn't how people did in school. They found like high school grades, for example, correlated best to learning to do what the teacher wanted you to do and learning how to make the teacher happy, not necessarily to learning the material or bring, being bright, but that people's, approach or reaction to failure was the key uh, correlation to success because people who failed and didn't give up like a lot of people a lot of people they fail at one thing and then they give up and they try something else and then you have the separate people that they fail and they keep failing because they don't change anything they keep doing the same thing being against the wall but the people that they would repeatedly fail but every time they would learn something from it and then try again and try and again and those people uh, were the ones that ended up having really incredible lasting success because they learned from it, they didn't give up, they were resilient, and then eventually got really good. Yeah, there, there's an awesome TED talk about grit, which I think is what that boils down to. And yeah, I, I think that is one of the most critical uh, traits that uh, a trial lawyer has to have if you want to eventually succeed, I think, more than anything, because you're going to lose and it's absolutely heartbreaking and devastating and psychologically difficult to deal with. Uh, but you have to be willing to try to find, okay, in the rubble, you know, what can I learn from that? What were the things I did? Well, how can I apply that to my next case? And, and I don't want to get all um, sort of, I don't know, too deep, but yeah, get deep. People like, <laughs> like that. <laughs> but I, as I was trying this case and we were in the middle of it and, and this family were such good people and and this really just rocked their entire world it wasn't just our client it was everybody his older parents have to take care of him now because of how bad his brain injury is and his kids lives turned upside down in his life and everybody we talked to and you know in the middle of the trial and there with my partner greg and we're with the father of our of our injured client and and i said to tim the dad i was like you know this will sound weird but i feel like I was meant to try this case like this, like all my hard work and, and all my failures at times were like, it was meant to make, get me to the point where I was qualified and capable for trying your case. And I don't know why it just struck me. I was like, all the hard work was here to try to help this family. Like it was just kind of meant to be in a, in a weird way. And I don't really believe in stuff like that, but it just, I don't know. It was just like all the hard work and not giving up finally kind of paid off for somebody else in particular. There does feel like there is a somewhat of a 
and I don't want to say like everything happens for a reason because I just I can't believe that the God that I love and worship will like I'm going to go paralyze somebody to go teach someone else a lesson. I just I don't. I'm I mean, I know some people may think that way. I just don't. But there does seem to be some kind of spiritual aspect to what we do, and I can't put it in words. It's not a traditional, but you—it's a vocation, and you feel it, and you—you know—you get these. You you learn to tune into things, and you realize that. Ask this question. I look here. You just get these this this intuition or this you know that you get this flow state, and things just kind of come to you. Absolutely, it's, it's like says it's a it's a calling, right? It is. It really is, and and it's and it's great because it doesn't feel like some parts of it, the fun parts, the trial part at least. And when you're even pre-trial, when you're onto something, and you're getting there. It doesn't feel like work. No, no, it's brutal. Uh, you know, when I, when I was trying to e-file a summary judgment response on Monday night at eleven fifty-one p.m. because it was due by midnight, that felt like work. Oh, but, totally. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't feel that, like work. And that's a it's an interesting point that you bring that up. So I tried to consciously in lead up to this trial. Because like you said, when you're in the zone and you're in the middle of the trial, it's just like you're, well, it's, when it's going well, at least, like you're just kind of flowing and things are just there and, and it feels good. Like there's nothing to compare that to. But yeah. there there are those, you know, I made a point of like videotaping myself at 1245 a.m. in my hotel room before opening statement and just to kind of capture how tired and worn out <laughs> and stressed I was too, you know, cause I think it's like, you have to remember all of that, that everything goes into that final product. Yeah. It's funny. I, when I'm in trial, like when I'm in, I'm in and I'm great and I feel alive. As soon as the jury leaves the courtroom or as soon as I walk out of the courtroom, I am so spent oh. uh, and, and worthless and tired. And it's, uh, it's just 100%. funny how it goes on and off. So a little bit before we get into the trial, you know, what are the things that you've done then over the, your 40 plus trials uh, to develop and get better and get to the point where you can get a $10.8 million verdict in a rural conservative county? I think it's just a complete desire and passion and interest to keep learning. And I mean, I just, I listen to everything I can. I mean, all I read is trial books and I mean, the, the list of, of, you know, in addition to Trial Lawyer Nation and all the incredible information that you've squeezed out of all these awesome lawyers. I mean, you know, Keenan, Ball, Rowley, uh, Mitnick, you know, uh, Rick Friedman's on becoming a trial lawyer. Uh-huh. Is like, that is like my go-to get in the right frame of mind when I'm in the middle of trying a case or about to try a case. Um, you know, and then Malone and the rules and Mark Mandel's framing books and, you know, McGinn, Artemis, you know, Phil Miller's yeah. focus group books. I'm a focus group junkie. I mean, you just go down the list and, and you know, I, I'm a believer personally of, I like what trials, uh, trial school is talking about, this yeah. MMA mixed method advocacy, because, you know, I think that all these lawyers have, there's so much amazing stuff out there, but either, you know, you can't apply it in every case. And also there's certain concepts or things that you could do that don't connect with you as a tribe. And you have to find the things that work for you, that, that, that resonate with you. And I feel like, you know, you can only find all those different pieces by exposing yourself to, you know, reptile edge, to trial by human, to, you know, all these other amazing lawyers, you know, Leeserman's, you know, Zen lawyer, and, yeah. and taking what, what connects with you, then as you do that, they all start to interconnect for you. And you can make this kind of bigger picture view of, wow, you know, that's how I can, can convey this better to a jury and do a better job for my client. So, you know, it's just the, the, the list is endless of um, how many influences there are, are out there for all of us. That is so important about talking about what works for you. And of course, part of that is you have to go try some cases to see what works for you, or at least do some focus groups or something that, and practice uh, different things. And, you know, I went to the Trial Lawyers College way back in 1998. I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit. And, you know, and I learned a lot. But, you know, one of the, like Spence would give an example of, of a closing. Uh, and he does this one thing where he's talking about, you know, you're, you're trying to empower the jury, you're putting them in their hands. And, you know, tell us some, some story about like there's a kid and he takes a bird and he's going to trick somebody and he's got the bird. And is it alive or dead? And he's going to kill the bird. Yeah. And I tried telling that and I just feel like an asshole that wants to kill a bird. Uh, oh, you know, that, I, I felt the same way. 
it doesn't work for me, but it works for him. It, right. or, it, or at least it did work for him in, you know, where he did it in the time period he did it. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, but it doesn't work for me. And so I, I've had to learn that the, what Spence said was don't imitate me word for word and gesture for gesture. What he said is become who you are. Um, and well, on a, on a very related note. So one of my absolute favorite closing uh, pieces to do these days is, and I've tried it so many different ways, and I think I've kind of finally figured it out is, um, you know, sort of the, what would the, you know, sort of the, the fair trade value, but there's, yeah. a, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of it. Like, I, I think what I've heard is that um, Jude Basil was one of the first ones to tell it at Travelers College. And it was like the black limousine pulls up, time stops, and this kind of scary looking person comes out and says like, are you so-and-so? Well, I've got a bunch of money for you. And they're sort of saying, you know, well, what did I do to deserve this? You know, and then they start to tell them, well, it's not what you deserve. It's what's going to happen to you. And they go through all the different bad stuff that happened. Person says, I don't want all that money. You know, I just want my life the way that it is, you know, well, too bad. But to your point about, you know, finding the way that it connects with you. So I've done that now in several different trials over the past probably five years. Because the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, I got to try this. I love it. I love it. And the first time it was just horrible the way that I did it. And my partner, Greg, was like, man, I, I don't know if you should do that one again. And then I worked with it. And then, you know, I heard my friend uh, Bob Simon had a version of it out in Los Angeles that I, I used. And then I heard Nick Rowley's that he does where he ties it to kind of the constitutional arguments. And I've since taken that and tied it to a constitutional argument that Keith Mitnick's been talking about. And now it works for me so well. I feel like it, like I get the message across now properly what I was trying to accomplish. But you had to find it to get to the point that it resonated with you, basically. So do you mind telling us how you do it now? Yeah. So the, the one I do now, like the one I just did was, um, you know, I always like saying that you find kind of a poignant moment right before the bad thing of the case happens. And then um, it's either, you know, the time stops. But the one I like the best is the person's at their house just before the bad event happens. And, you know, you dramatic effect, you knock on the podium and you knock on a table in the courtroom and you pause and, you know, was that for me? Uh, who, who Were you expecting somebody to know? And your client goes over and opens the door and there's this kind of, you know, intimidating looking person says like, and my client's name was Chris, you know, are you Chris? And his family's there behind him. And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Chris. He's like, oh, okay. Well, I found the right guy. Well, I've got something for you. And he drops a giant bag and and he looks in and there's more money than he's ever seen before, ever. And, um, you know, he says, well, you know, what's all that? He's like, well, that's for you. He's like, what are you talking about? And, you know, just basically then goes on to say that, you know, this is for something that's about to happen to you. Because in just a moment, you're going to hug your dad goodbye. And you're going to go to the hospital and your life is never going to be the same again. And because what's going to happen is you're going to get injected with a chemical and it's going to cause you to have an allergic reaction. And then you just kind of go into all the terrible stuff, the, 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 what he was experiencing as he's, please, you know, get me medical care and they're not going to come and save you and your brain's going to die in part. But that's, that's just the beginning of it, you know, Chris, because then you're going to be the equivalent of a seven-year-old kid and your parents are going to have to take care of you. But you're going to have enough wherewithal to realize that they're fighting and they're crying. And you're going to realize that they're fighting and crying because of you, Chris, because of how much trouble you cause your parents and your kids. And you're going to see your daughters and you're going to remember the dad you used to be. And you're going to realize you can never be that person again, Chris. But don't worry, all this money over here is going to be for you. And then, you know, eventually gets to the point and, and says, you know, well, so what do you think, Chris? Well, I don't want it. You know, get the hell off my property. I don't want any part of anything that you just showed me. And the guy says, well, too bad because you never had a choice. You know, and then I turn to the jury. You know, he never had a choice in any of this. You know, he was an innocent person. Now, the part that Keith has, Mitnick has done on his breaststrokes recently that I thought was a tremendous way of tying one that I heard Rowley was tying all of that to your constitutional right uh, to A, file a lawsuit, and that to pursue your life, liberty, uh, and pursuit of happiness, that those are these inalienable rights. It's the most important aspect of what we have, and, and tying and connecting that to the sort of man or woman at the door story, for me, is, is 
I think is, is very effective. And in fact, Michael, I can tell you, cause I like data. I don't like anecdotal stuff yeah. in two separate, um, verdicts over the past two years. Um, I have had jurors call me to talk about their experience and tell me, and not, I did not bring it up. I didn't talk to them and say that point you made about the guy saying, you know, here's what you're going to get. How much money will it take? Really helped us think how to talk about the non-economic damages. So when I hear people say that unsolicited in two separate cases, I haven't heard it yet for this one, if it had any effect, but I, it makes me think that there's something to it. Well, you can't argue with the result. Um, so there was more to it than that argument piece in this case. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the facts of the case and all the other work you do, but still it, uh, it, it didn't hurt if nothing else. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now, back to the show. Tell me a little bit then about the case. So in a, in a nutshell, like you said earlier, it was a systems failure case. So it was a 41-year-old man. He's got a Great job. He's a project manager out at a telecommunications company, but he's got a chronically bad back for years. Being prescribed oxycodone, he's had prior surgery, it didn't work, so his doctor sends him for an MRI. It's a contrast and non-contrast MRI, goes in, and at the time that he goes in, the hospital had had this MRI for about one year. And as part of the new MRI, they put two policies in place that were good policies. And that was one of the things that we stressed, like they had the policies to have prevented this. One was the drug box policy, which said that in any room where they're gonna put contrast agents in people, whether it's a CT with iodine or the MRI with gadolinium, we're gonna make sure there's a medical box that has the medicine to treat allergic reactions that even though they're rare, they do happen, and when they do happen, they can be, you know, life-threatening. So we're going to have the medicine right nearby to treat the patient if necessary. Number two, because this MRI was sort of in like a tomb uh, of, a, of a part of the hospital, the technician's in there all by themselves with the patient through three different doors. Nobody can hear a word they have to say. So if something goes bad, the hospital has a policy that there's a button in the computer room of the MRI room they can hit. It sounds an alarm in the emergency department, and that is to signal that the emergency room doctor and another staff members to immediately come down and treat the patient. Well, there wasn't any training of the ER personnel, and for reasons that were as silly as, well, we have the medicine somewhere else in the hospital, they didn't keep a drug box in the MRI. So you have, there are two policies that are designed to specifically treat patients uh, that would have a life-threatening uh, reaction in place, but they're both uh, not followed. People aren't trained on them and or violated. So inevitably, unfortunately for Chris, he has one of these rare reactions. And uh, there's no medicine, so nobody could give him epinephrine to treat his allergic reaction if they wanted to. And, uh, but more sort of, you know, theatrically bad, it's one of those, you know, I can't get over type moments. When the technician hits the alarm to signal, I need help right now, the emergency room doctor has no idea what the sound is, literally doesn't know what the alarm sound is, so much so that he begins walking around looking to find out where it's coming from and what it is because he thinks maybe something's broken or there's some kind of a pipe burst or something. And literally at the time that somebody finally comes down to get him, 
he's standing on a chair with his head inside of a drop ceiling trying to echolocate where this sound is coming. And at that point, the director of radiology tells him, hey, man, we need you down in the MRI. There's this guy and something's really wrong with him. And, and so there were significant delays in time. And um, they finally get him there. There was a big controversy about whether our client arrested in the actual MRI room versus he was still sort of alive and they brought him down to the emergency room and arrested. But ultimately, he suffers a cardiac arrest due to the allergic reaction. And uh, because he doesn't get proper circulation for a period of time, suffers a very significant anoxic brain injury. Oh. And um, the damages were not really contested. Everybody in the case pretty much agreed he had a very significant brain injury. It was more, the defense was saying, we acted very quickly, we're a small hospital, we did the best that we could. You know, these, these reactions are very rare. Your, your, your client takes, was taking oxycodone, that probably sped up the process and gave us less time. You know, and our sort of counter theme or frame was that's all the more reason, the less time there was, that's all the more reason you have to follow policy and procedure. Yeah. So that, that's the case in a nutshell, uh, basically. Well, those kind of you know, violations of their own roles, uh, much less industry standards, why'd they let you try the case? Why weren't they just begging you to settle it? Well, Michael, so, you know, uh, Dan Kahneman is, you know, the Nobel Prize winning cognitive uh, psychologist. He always talks about in his books, despite all the science, how much luck there is in our lives or yeah. bad luck. I mean, it can go either which way. And I look back on this case and I feel like I was very lucky to try the case. My clients were unlucky that they were forced to try this case and go through that whole process that they shouldn't have been. But I and my partner, Greg Uniton, were lucky to get to try this case because it was such a good case. You just don't get to try a lot of really good cases. And I think that somebody somewhere on the other side, you know, if it was the lawyers or the clients or the insurance company, somebody I think was banking on pandemic mixed with rural county that really hasn't had any verdicts mixed with, uh, you know, people love doctors and no one's going to hold these people responsible for this, I think. Because I, I always felt going into this and I said, I say, compared to any other trial I've ever tried, the facts of this case in my mind are head and shoulders better than anything I've ever tried before. And you had, and, and maybe not started off this way, but you ended up with such a simple theory. Yeah. That, and we did work hard to, I mean, I tell this story like, oh, it's obvious that that's what it was. There was a lot of other stuff that happened. So originally the defendants were hospital, radiologist, emergency room doctor, because we had doctors, experts telling us that the resuscitation process and, and everything once they even discovered that our client was in real distress medically was extremely substandard. However, that's the you know, tougher event type case rather than a systems failure type case. And I was always a little, once I got involved in the case, I was like, oh, I don't know really if I really want to get into that. So we did tons of focus groups, sort of the individual, you know, four to eight person focus groups to get a what are the things that are resonating with, with people? And then once we got a pretty good sense that it was the policy violations, that people could not get over that kind of stuff, um, that's when serendipitously, I listened to your episode and who are you interviewing three and a half weeks out from my trial? Uh, John Campbell of Empirical Jury. <laughs> you know, and I said to Greg, I said, look, Greg, if there was ever a case where, you know, it would warrant a, an empirical jury study, it is this case, pandemic, you know, big damages case, you know, rural, MedMal, you name it, it's got all of it. And so, you know, we then took everything we'd learned from our focus groups and our own intuition as lawyers, you know, did what John and, and his wife and, and their whole group told us to do. And when he came back, he said, you know, your case is one of the highest ever like in favor of plaintiff liability cases we've ever run. Wow. Yeah, he said, it, it, I mean, I can show you the numbers, but it was like 94% of all people polled, and they did like 300 something, were finding fault against the hospital. And then pretty good numbers against both doctors. Now, ultimately, 
because we felt that the case against the emergency room doctor was most likely to in, you know, get some of that halo effect of the frontline provider, and he was the weakest of the liability. And, and, his, and his involvement, you know, he was more a victim of circumstance as opposed right. to, you know, really super negligent as far as a jury's going to care. We dropped him about a week before trial and just went with the radiologist in the hospital because those two theories were congruent. I think that was really smart. It's, it's hard to tell multiple stories of, I guess it's a, I think it's a Russian proverb. I heard it from Rodney Jew. The, if you chase two rabbits, you won't catch either one. You know, you, yeah. it's really, really hard. And sometimes you have to, you know, because you don't have enough coverage or something and you need to get different policies or, you, you know, people are going to point fingers at each other. But even if you're going to have a multiple defendant case, I think you need to pick a story and then let yeah. people point at each other or something. Uh, it's just and, so hard to try to say, and these three people all messed up. And I, yeah, and I, I think you have to make really big decisions like that. I mean, you know, Mitnick talks about that and and don't eat the bruises of, you know, you got the case where the person committed uh, tax fraud, but you just have this giant, you know, lost earnings claim that you just want to, and that's going to sink your whole case if you do something like that. Right. And And I'm sure you've had it so many times where, you have to make decisions, um, you know, that uh, are, are tough sometimes. You don't, you don't know if they're the right one, but that one felt right. You know, we don't need, we don't need the emergency room doc in this case. And, and, I, and we wanted to win the case so bad because it was a no-offer case. You know, we just desperate to do, to do something for this family. And I, I helped try a medical negligence case, and I was, this was a long time. This was 2001, 2002. It's a long time ago. Uh, no, 2000. This was a long time ago. But the, I was begging the lawyer brought me in the case. Like the person went into the emergency room and we were, there was an argument about where the pain was, but it pretty seemed pretty clear. It was like in the flank, not in the chest. And, you know, he eventually gets into exploratory abdominal surgery. They don't do an EKG before surgery, which to me is like really clear negligence. And then he dies from a heart attack after, because of the increased clotting and stuff after the surgery. So we had a real simple case. But it was 10 days after the ER admission, but the ER doctor had a million dollar policy and the lawyer brought me in would not let the ER doctor out. And this, the lack of credibility of that claim just brought everything else down. And we got That's, a zero verdict on everybody. I think if we had just focused on our clear case. Uh, which raises another point. Again, what Mark Mandel was talking about in his podcast about how the frames work. And this was something that we were really conscious about in this case. So, you know, that, that framing concept is you want to do everything you can to keep the jury's attention on your best, you know, case determinative facts. And, and that idea fits in with this other concept that I'm obsessed with, which is just the focusing effect. Again, you know, Dan Kahneman says that's like the most powerful cognitive bias going basically in humans is whatever you focus on, that's what's important. You know, he calls it the what you see is all there is. Yeah. And, and, and I have many, many times in other trials, I've gotten so fixated on defense arguments or these other issues that weren't important. And I almost, I almost did it in this case, and I think it would have been a massive mistake. Thank goodness my partner, Greg, uh, disabused me of this. So one of the, what the defense was trying to say in our case was all this happened in less than five minutes. He went from having the beginning of a contrast reaction to getting all the way down to the emergency room where there he had his arrest and happened in less than five minutes with all these other shenanigans that we knew had happened. And I was like, Greg, we can, we can blow this up. We can show definitively that it wasn't five. It was probably more like six minutes or six 30. And Greg's <laughs> like, dude, if you do that, you're going to make it seem like that's a big deal. Like it's important yeah. that we know a different timeline. And I was like, ah, you're right. And what the real issue was is, Policy violations cause delay. Delay is never good in an emergency. And that's all we had to do. And then passively, we could blow up their timeline without having to, you know, sort of, uh, uh, what's the term, kind of say, you know, this is the timeline that, you know, the, right. that you have to use. So that was, that was just one of those many, you know, near misses that I almost probably walked into. So how, you know, what are some other things that you've learned through all your study of advocacy that uh, you used in this trial? Oh, I mean, everything. Everything's there. So um, I, uh, 
you can even you can see it. I, I so I record all my openings repeatedly. So in preparation, I record it on my iPhone and I watch it and I listen to it and then I go do it again. I record it again and I try to just because hearing it and watching myself just helps me realize, no, this is bad. This could be better. This could be tighter. This should be cut. And um, I actually post I have my uh, I have my opening. The one closest in time I did to the trial posted on my YouTube channel. So if anybody wants to watch it, but you'll see all the different influences. So yeah, this one has- it, uh, If you send me a link, I will link it in the show notes because I, I think that it would be really, really cool to watch your opening. Oh, I, that would be awesome. No, I, I mean, I, I figured people would be interested to maybe to see it. So, but the influences of it just in the opening would be, you know, I start off right off the bat with a rule. And the rule was, doc, you know, hospitals and doctors must follow their policies and procedures uh, to, you know, prevent patients from, you know, suffering avoidable harm or something to that effect. So then did kind of the initial, um, I mean, it's probably not, you know, this week's most current uh, reptile or edge type outline, but a version of the Ball-Keenan opening where after the rules taught uh, or, or explained, go into the story of the case, you know, again, using focusing effect, it's all about the actions of the defendants and the key defendants and the key mistakes, you know, but then keeping in mind, you know, what, what Rally has talked about lately that, you know, you don't need to put every piece of your case in your opening statement and leaving something, you know, for the trial and for closing. And so try to keep it condensed and to the point, just hitting a couple critical points and hopefully allowing the jury to reach the conclusion of, oh, you know, they're thinking of the facts or the frame of the rule and coming to their own conclusion rather than me beating them over the head with it about what was wrong and why it was important. And then after the story's done, you know, revealing, you know, Chris and this injury and that we represent him, then going into who, you know, who we're suing and why. And there was a great point that somebody made on um, one of the recent trial school lectures on opening statements. And they said, it's, absolutely critical that you show not just what they did wrong you have to show what they did wrong versus what they should have done and clearly demonstrate the important difference that it would have made and as many times as i've done the who we're suing and why section and that just has definitely been tried to be articulated to me by david ball and canon before hadn't really clicked when i heard this lawyer say it on trial school i was like that is important so i really stress that point um then um, oh, I'm forgetting the names of, the, of all these guys, but oh, Cusimano. So Cusimano talked about the importance of, if you can, when you're talking about rules you know, and holding people to standards, especially in a med mal, I, I stress, look, we're not trying to hold this hospital to one of these giant tertiary care centers or the highest standards out there. All we're saying is just follow your own policies. That's it. You know, try to keep the bar as low as possible of what we're trying to hold them to. Um, and then um, I did uh, putting things in context from Mitnick because I love that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, then just throughout the course of the case, I think definitely like Mandel talked about, we brought everything back to policies and procedures. Every expert, whether it was ours or theirs, we would always say, whatever they say, you have policies and procedures at your facility, right? Do you train people on them? Yep. Is it important to follow them? Yep. You know, why do you have them? And just, they, they would have to give it to you. And yeah. that just constant reminder uh, throughout the case that everybody does this and everybody on the jury in some form or another has to deal with their own, you know, rules and policies and procedures. Yeah. So, I I've been surprised in jury selection. I, mean, I had a construction site injury and also I went OSHA and, you know, teachers were talking about having to follow OSHA rules that applied to them. There was a, a kid that in th summer theater helped set up stages and he had to follow OSHA rules and learn what they were to set up a stage. I was just shocked at how much, how universal this stuff is and how accepting our jurors are of it. And, and I think that's why those, you know, the system failure, if you can find it, is such a stronger case generally because it's so much easier to, uh, you know, connect that to people's lives because they're, you know, they're at the end of the day, you know, they're either trying to analogize or compare what they're doing to, um, 
you know, their own lives or their own belief system or their own, you know, judgment scale. Uh, and if you can do it in something that they're very familiar with, that they're going to be much more likely to be able to make that comparison, especially in a medical context, I think, where probably a lot of jurors are thinking like, well, who am I to be judging the actions of doctors, these super high qualified um, and trained individuals who, you know, at the end of the day are trying to care for people. So when you get it back to that basic thing that everybody can identify with, I think, you know, more often than not, you're in a better position than just trying the straight event case. Absolutely. Thank you to everyone who attended Cowan's Big Rig Bootcamp in August. We had an excellent virtual turnout this year and are already thinking of how we can continue to raise that bar for next year. If you'd like to attend virtually in 2021, be sure to mark May 20th, 2021 on your calendar now and save the date. To stay updated with details as they become available, visit BigRigBootCamp.com and sign up for our mailing list. And now back to the show. So what was it like then trying a case during the pandemic? It was fun. Okay. <laughs> I, I have had so many people talk to me and Greg about, you know, what was it like with the mask and, and the social distancing? And, you know, first and foremost, I, I have to just give so much credit to the court system and our judge, Judge Jackie Bernard, uh, because they did everything so safely and so smartly. And I think that they, um, I wish they would do a seminar for other courts around the country to see how feasible that this is. So let me just rewind it because I think people yeah. might be a little interested in some of this. Well, I, I'm very interested because I'm trying to persuade judges to have trials. Yeah. So I think some of the really big things that a lot of courts could implement, and, and, and I also have to say, look, Clearly, we're not going to get back to running the same volume and number of trials that we were doing pre-pandemic until we get COVID and everything under control much more than we are presently. But there's absolutely a way that most court systems can be at least trying some jury trials. Okay, so that's my belief, my starting point. So some of the things this court did tremendously was one, ahead of time, weeks ahead of time, they sent out their own set questionnaire. And the questionnaire, you know, has people fill out their basic demographic information, but what it included is a hardship section. And it was in that area that there were lots of people that had legitimate COVID-based reasons for not being able to participate. You know, I either I'm at risk, I care for an older person, or I just generally am like hyper freaked out and could not, couldn't do this, period. So what they did was, they notify those people, you know, we're going to we're going to punt you on your jury service until a later date. So now you've got a veneer that's already excluded from a lot of the people that you would have wasted time finding out that they've got hardships or, or whatnot. So then what they did is a they had a huge courtroom where we did our selection. They had 45 people in our room, another 45 or so in another room that watched via video. Um, all of the, the voir dire questions. And the way that the court approached it was all the people in our courtroom had paddles with numbers. And when we would read a voir dire question, and the voir dire was done as basically yes, no questions that we could basically ask whatever we wanted, but it had to be yes, no. Okay. So, you know, do you, whatever, you know, think of the question, yes, no, paddle raises, Judge would say, everybody that answered affirmatively, line up on the side of the uh, court, you know, seven, eight feet apart. We'd go out into a hallway and we would do individual voir dire on their response, spread out with the court reporter, everybody masked up. And it worked really well. I mean, we picked a jury. Uh, we started at, I don't know, 9.15 and we had our jury by 1 p.m. Wow. How big was your panel? Uh, well, we, we did... Uh, 12 jurors uh, with four alternates. Wow. Yeah, uh, because the judge was understandably concerned that with a seven to eight day trial factoring in, you know, who knows what, yeah. uh, we could lose some people. Now, I think one thing that was sort of implied we didn't talk about was, you know, if one of the jurors we found out in the middle of the trial tested positive for COVID, I think that would have been the end of the trial. Because uh, I don't know how you could, you could continue. I don't think an alternate's going to do you any good if, 
you know, yeah. someone that's been in the courtroom, you know, was now tested positive. Plus, they're the quarantine. <laughs> but, but we actually, my partner and I, made a real point of that and tried to really implement, you know, the speed trial concepts. I mean, we tried our case, two opening statements to start, 17 witnesses. In, we got our entire case in chief in two and a half days. Wow. With, awesome. with four separate experts, two of whom were liability, you know, two or three actual, you know, economists, life care planner, two, uh, no, I should say six, six experts. We did that in two and a half days. So much so, to fe- we finished at two o'clock on a Thursday with our case in chief, and um, defense counsel was not prepared to call a witness until the following Monday afternoon. Wow. Which worried me, because I thought that was an opportunity for somebody to get COVID <laughs> or something over the weekend. So I wasn't exactly thrilled with the delay, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that really comes from learning your story and having the courage to stick to it and the discipline to stick to your story and not get caught up in all these other things. And then exactly. you, it, you sit down. Exactly. So just a couple other quick points about what it was like trying yeah. it is the masks were not a problem, at least for me and my partner. So much so we had masks on the entire time. And we were so used to them by the end of the day, we would get back to our hotel and realize we still had them on. We hadn't even thought to take them off yet because you're just used to it by that point. And, and all trial lawyers know that, you know, the second the gavel hits or whatever it is in the courtroom, you're zoned in. You, I'm not sitting there, you know, worried about, oh, my mask doesn't feel right or that kind of thing. I would recommend for those of us like me who wear glasses a lot, you wear your contacts because your glasses fog up and that can be a little bit of pain in the butt. Um, other things that were important, they had plexiglass around the judges. You know, she was all plexiglassed in, but she always wore uh, a mask. They had plexiglass around the witness stand. Now they had done sort of a bellwether, smaller criminal trial a week and a half before our trial. And the judge said, if this goes poorly, you're not gonna have a trial. Yeah. Right? because of how well they run things over there, it went just fine. But what they found was the jurors asked the court if it would be possible for witnesses to take their masks off, because I guess maybe for credibility purposes or something, they wanted to see them. Now, the only way that masks really had any impact in our trial was there pretty much every witness you'd have to the first question was you know you know sir ma'am we can't hear you you got to get closer to the mic kind of thing uh, if they had opted to keep their masks on uh, and just everybody having to deal with microphones so we had to do all of our questioning seated at council table talking into a microphone um, there really was no walking around the courtroom except in opening and closing you could stand at a podium that was centrally located but because of how far spread apart the jurors were you know imagine 20 yards across and maybe 15 feet deep with a elevated platform in the back so that you know people's view wasn't blocked jurors spread way out across you had to be in front of a microphone for people to hear you where were the jurors and they weren't in the jury box then uh, well, some of them were in the jury box. Okay. And the and Judge Bernard had a good idea that because of how people had to be spread out, you know, you couldn't just line all sixteen people up in a in a line across horizontally. So you had to have some people. You had to have rows. So she had um, before their first criminal trial, uh, people come in and build a a riser in the back. So there was kind of this wood platform that ran all behind the um the jury box and there were jurors up there and then you know they just kind of had them spread out wide maybe three rows deep and you know 20 yards across uh everybody very far apart jurors were masked the entire time uh and i found them to be very compliant with it whenever i looked over any uh did anyone get sick no no, I mean, not that I've heard. And yeah. I, I tell you what, I mean, I'm pretty cautious about, um, you know, taking precautions personally. And I felt very safe. Um, they just the way that the administration had people even coming in to go through the metal detector. You know, they had a sort of an ante room to even get into the building. And there was, you know, the big green circles where you'd stand on that was probably eight feet apart. And then people had to stay outside before they go in. Um, now, 
I think that an not an impediment, but something that's important for other courts looking to try some cases again is you need some space. You know, I don't think that this is feasible in, you know, a tiny courtroom. And, and you know, the courtrooms at different uh, courthouses are all different shapes and sizes. And certainly you need a bigger courtroom to, I think, carry out proper social distancing and, and the safety precautions that are necessary. But, yeah, but some some trials are better than, than no trials because at least, you know, not only there are cases that need to be tried, but even for settlements, my significant cases are not settling right now. No. Uh, because there's no trial threat. Until you get down there and, you know, basically like Bunker Hill, until you see the whites of their eyes, you know, and they realize they're going to get shot, they don't, if there's any hope of escape, they don't come up with the big money. Michael, we all know that, especially on the significant cases, that you're never going to get the full value for your client without the, the impending threat of a trial. And that's why it, I just think that they that court systems really, and, and I know that everybody's working hard, but I just get the sense that some are more motivated than others. And my thinking also is nobody knows what the future is going to hold. So, you know, people that are kicking trial terms until, you know, the spring of 21 well you don't know that we're just magically going to be all better by then so why not try to start figuring out something now and then iterate as as time goes on and and you know rather than just doing nothing basically now it's just i that, I, I don't understand that and again i i really hope and i'm going to try to push her uh now now that our, our case is resolved to um I just think that Judge Bernard and the way they did things at, at the Blair County Courthouse was uh, commendable and, and provided a good blueprint for a lot of other court systems out there. Well, I'm definitely going to get this uh, transcribed, uh, this portion, and send both the transcription and a link to the recording to some of our local judges in the hope that uh, that we can have start having some trials because it's the, the we need to be safe and you know we if we're about safety you know and, and your trial is about safety and not letting people be harmed we have to make sure that we don't ask people to risk personal harm to have a trial or that we don't expose people to sickness and death to have a trial, but you can do it safely. And we, we can't, the world just can't stop spinning. And, you know, I think if we're willing to be creative, work hard and, and find a way to do it, I think we can still have trials. I, I Whether it's live agree. or virtual or something, uh, there's gotta be some way to do it. I, I've got one question though that, you know, I keep hearing from people, well, you know, did you talk about you did, a, you did a, a written questionnaire and people that had just an incredible fear of COVID were excluded. Um, and the fear I've had is, you know, well, it's the, the blue people who are really scared of COVID and they won't show up and you'll just get the, the red super Trump supporters that don't like lawsuits, supposedly, if there's really a correlation there, or they aren't, they're not afraid and they're not worried about safety and so that those won't be good jurors for you. So we... I did not. Okay, so the starting point in this county is that it's a very red county. Um, you know, went for Trump in uh, 2016, and it's a, it's weird when you drive through neighborhoods and see a house that doesn't have a Trump um, flag on it. And in doing our research, because we could view the questionnaires of the potential veneer. Um, you know, we, we were researching and trying to find out information about them beforehand. And it was apparent that probably 80% of our veneer uh, was Republican, okay, was, re was registered as much. But I did not find um, a big distinction between, you know, red versus blue not wanting to come into court, period. Okay. Now maybe that's different in a in a in a more urban type environment. You know, I haven't tried one in Allegheny County, which is you know the county uh, which is our court here in Pittsburgh. Um, but I didn't find that being a problem. I mean, John Campbell from Empirical Jury, he was worried, you know, about who we could select from given you know who they had identified were our better jurors, which was um, older. That was the real one he was worried about. Yeah. Um, and, and women, uh, not, not that the female versus male was a problem from, from COVID, but it was more the age thing. He was concerned that we'd lose a large percentage of our, uh, of the age population, older population. That was not the case at all. I would say the average age of our jury ultimately was probably fifties. 
Okay. And, and there was a number of people in the veneer that were in their, you know, late 60s, early 70s. That's good to know. Uh, Again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend on probably different jurisdictions. but And I really don't think there's a, a really big red-blue Republican-Democrat distinction on who's a good juror for a personal injury case anyway. And I think people get their own politics and political leanings mixed up because we're so tribal now with who would be good or bad on a particular issue. And we have universal issues. And sometimes, you know, the conservative juror is better for us. In in our case, what what uh, you know John Campbell found was that you know we had an overwhelming support from almost everybody that we had a strong liability case, and that proved to be true in deliberations because they were done with liability in less than forty minutes in, in, wow. in deliberations. So the political component or the the leanings of people's you know political views really had no effect in our case as far as liability, but it did have, you know, a potential impact on damages, it was found. And, you know, what we did not want were, uh, you know, young male conservatives. That, that was our, that was our, you know, worst juror, so to speak. Um, so, you know, there is, or at least there was in the research on our case, uh, some political component to it but it wasn't what was going to change whether we won or lose. It was more probably a matter of how much we would win, probably. And on that, how close was Campbell to calling, you know, the result of the trial on his empirical jury work? Like the number? Yeah. Freaky. So he, they did something like 300 people. And, and I know this because I, I got the result before the trial. And... Um, you know, they, 300 people, they come back, people are all over the place and they come back and they say, you know, the median or mean number, uh, was 11.16 million, but, and I can't remember why I have to go back and read what it said. There was a, a, a reduction ratio. I think it was because we couldn't, we're not allowed to ask for an anchor number. Right. In, in Pennsylvania for non-economic damages, we can't suggest a number that the jury should award. So he had to reduce it by like 2.3%. And so the number, the dead on number that they said was the value was 10.86 million. Well, he was off by 60 grand. I know. I said, I want more money. <laughs> Ask for your money back. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was really eerie. It, Michael, it was so eerie because, you know, the way that the verdict came in, there was all these different components and they didn't, it wasn't like added up at the end to tell you. So just because I'm such a nerd about all this stuff and I'm, you're curious about the science, as soon as we got back to our friend's office afterwards, I started calculating because I just wanted to see where the number fell. And I was like, wait a second, that, I'm, I think that was the number that he, that he, you know, that, that he predicted. So who knows? I mean, I, I don't know if that's an outlier on our case, but it certainly was eerily accurate in our case. Well, he tells me that the numbers here are, are within a pretty small margin of error, you know, but everyone tells you that and I like him a lot. And I'm, I'm actually, we're gathering the data, waiting for some extra opinions. We're getting ready to use them on a case. Uh, and we have another case I'm hoping to try. We have a hearing. I'm hoping to try in Houston, Texas in November of the let us have trials and we'll use them for that one. But it's always nice to know that it really works in the real world because, you know, every person that has some product to sell is always selling you on it. Uh, yeah. But you never know until you get, you know, you talk to other people that work with them, you know, does it really, really work or not? And, and I mean, I, I think you're like me. I mean, it's like, you know, I pride myself on being sort of a healthy skeptic. And, you know, it's, I mean, I don't think it's a crystal ball. It couldn't possibly be in every case, but it's certainly helpful. And one thing I was doing throughout the case was, you know, I felt like the trial was going well. And I really worked hard in, as part of the empirical jury study to put, all of the key defenses in our defense statement that I could to try to really be as brutally accurate as I could on everything that they were going to say and not pull any punches. And so through the case, as their different, you know, defense themes would come in, I'd go and say like, I covered that, right? I covered that. And it was sure enough, you know, it was in there. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it was, it was pretty darn accurate because, you know, that overwhelming, uh, in favor of us in the empirical jury, I think bore out in the matter of time 
that it took them to blow through the first, you know, several questions of negligence, causation, and apportionment of harm. I mean, yeah. they were they were asking for our non-economic damage numbers 40 minutes into deliberations, which well, that's an, it's in medical, especially, that's incredible. It doesn't happen. I mean, there's usually a lot of time spent on causation or life, you know, whatever. But man, it was, and I talked to one juror afterwards just by chance and he was like, boy, you know, the way you guys laid it out, it was so clear. There wasn't even, there wasn't even a question about fault in the case. So I think the other thing is, you know, you just, you know, you want to hone in on the theory and then you test it and you know that the theory works, you know, it resonates. Yeah. I think it makes it easier to have the courage and discipline to stick to your theory and not, you know, let's throw 10 things at the wall and hope that one of them sticks. 100%. Couldn't agree more with that. So anything else significant about the trial you want to let us know about? Uh, um, yeah, I think the significant thing was how insignificant the feeling of trying a case during the pandemic was. You know, I think people imagine that it's going to be this crazy, weird experience, but it really is no was no different than you know, trying a case in a courtroom you've never tried in before or in front of a judge you've never tried in. There's always, you know, new things that you have to adapt to, the whatever the judge's rules are, the way that the courtroom is set up. It's It was no different than that. I mean, it, it really, in hindsight, it was just more much ado about nothing in my head. And I was very concerned about it. I, you know, well, am I going to get all sweaty in my mask? Am I going to have a hard time talking? Am I it just, it really, it had little impact on the way that the case tried um, from just a practical standpoint. And it's the same things like your tech people just have to be more mindful of where the visuals are and the sight lines are and the volume, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I do really think, and I think this goes for all trials, period, but I think in particular during the pandemic, that we need to strive to be as streamlined in our presentations as possible. And that the faster that you can try your case and get it to the jury, the better you are on so many levels. You know, if you are dragging your case on, that's never a good thing, but it's probably gonna be particularly bad when your jurors have to have masks on all day and are you know, now being exposed to this extra level of threat uh, that you know, you're, increasing by every minute longer you make your trial take. So I, I think that is something to be really mindful of in this day and age. And, and I also think that on a related note, you know, that makes doing things by video more, I think, interesting uh, than, you know, maybe it has been in the past. I've always been a big video guy. I love video. It, it just, I, I think it allows me to try a much more concise case I'm never wasting time because I've always got a witness if need be. I get the trial going before the trial actually starts. I'm in a better frame of mind. I've always been in that. But I understand there's lots of lawyers out there that eschew uh, the use of video during trial. And, you know, personally, I think especially now with the pandemic and how much time people are spending in front of their screens, it's, it's fine. As long as you make it entertaining and you are mindful of the general rules of, you know, keeping people's attention, you know, the more video... I mean, maybe not the better, but more video is, is probably more appropriate in this day and age. Yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, any other advice you give to the rest of us uh, and, any, and maybe the judges, that the rest of us go in front of on you know, how we can get back into the courtroom? I think just that sentiment that you and I shared a little bit ago, Michael, that we have to get trials going again. You know, we waiting and pausing, I mean, unless it's, you know, to implement some kind of really important safety precautions that need to be built or something like that. Um, but, but just waiting for the sake of waiting because, you know, maybe things will be different six months from now. I think that, uh, what, is, what does John Morgan always say? Uh, hope is not a plan. Yeah. And it, that's it. There's no benefit to anybody, defense, plaintiff, the, the parties involved, Insurance companies probably benefit, but but nobody else benefits from just hoping that somehow it's going to be better uh, down the line. You know, people need to try to figure out at least how to do some degree of trials now. Um, and we're all fighting the same battle. I, right here in Allegheny County, you know, they have uh, pretty much uh, delayed, uh, you know, put off trials until 21. 
you know, and there's a lot of lawyers that are fighting hard to try to figure out ways to uh, get cases trying now. So it's just, I think it's eminently doable. I saw it happen. I experienced it. I mean, and it was run with uh, amazing precision. I mean, we never started late. We never had problems with jurors um, or, or issues that were COVID related or it takes longer to get them into the courthouse. You know, the court just planned for when the jury needs to be here and when they need to be in the jury room. And I mean, everything started and ran on time. I mean, it was, it was so commendable, but also just a demonstration of how eminently doable this is. Well, thank you so much. And uh, first of all, thank you for being a leader out there and trying the case during this time and showing us it can be done safely and that we can win. Uh, and thank you for coming on the show and sharing it with us. Uh, if anybody out there wants to get a hold of you, either to learn more or maybe because they've got a good case in Pennsylvania and they want to get a lawyer that can win big cases to help them out on it, uh, how do they get a hold of you? So my law firm is Myers, Evans, Lupatin, and Uniton. We're at uh, Myers, M-E-Y-E-R-S, MedMal.com. And like I said, I have a, a YouTube channel that I do all my nerdy different psychology and, and trial tips and, and strategies and takeaways from trials on. Uh, so you can find me there and, and check out some of the other uh, stuff if, if you're into that kind of thing. And, you know, Mike, I just want to say thank you. Like, I'm the biggest fan of your show. It's awesome. Please keep doing all these episodes. They're the best. And I just can't tell you how, what an honor it was to be on your show. Well, thank you. And you've made me a fan of yours. And uh, I appreciate uh, you coming on. And I look forward to hearing from you on your future huge verdicts. And maybe you can come back to the next one. I sure hope. You're the man. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff-lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.